0: Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Matt Martin. I'm a bariatric surgeon and acute care surgeon at the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center. And we're here with the new behind-the-knife bariatric surgery team to talk
0: about a couple of articles. So I'll have the rest of the team introduce themselves. Hey, Vincent Chang. Uh, I just finished my bariatric surgery fellowship at Kaiser South Sacramento, and I'll be working at Kaiser Ontario for bariatric surgery as well.
2: Hi, my name is Kenor Jane Spangler. I'm a general and bariatric surgeon at Duke University, where I'm also the fellowship director for our advanced GIMIS and bariatric surgery fellowships, where we have three clinical fellows every year.
3: Hi, my name is Adrian Dan, and uh, I am also a bariatric foregut and MIS surgeon. I work at Summa Health in Akron, Ohio, where I'm also the program director for our fellowship in advanced GIMIS foregut and bariatric surgery. And I'm also Associate Professor of Surgery with Northeast Ohio Medical Universities.
0: Today, we'll be discussing a paper written by Stenberg, published in 2023, titled Long-Term Safety and Efficacy of Closure of Mesenteric Defects in Laparoscopic Gastric Bypass Surgery. But before we jump into the paper, I wanted to ask our attendings whether they close the mesenteric defects below the Diginostomy or at Peterson's defect.
2: I close both defects 100% of the time with non-absorbable suture. I do either a purse string or a running closure or a combination of both, depending on the shape and structure of the defect itself.
3: I also close both defects routinely on gastric bypass procedures. I like to use permanent braided suture placed in figure eight fashion to bring the mesenteric edges together. The only exceptions are situations where the operating surgeon has considered closure and attempted it, but may feel that it could lead to bleeding or tearing of a heavy mesentery or something detrimental. Otherwise it always gets closed.
1: Yeah, and, and I previously closed both defects. And then when uh, we adjusted our technique for bypass, I went to just closure of the defect at the jejuno-jejunostomy and not closing Peterson's. What are you doing in uh, your fellowship
0: and plan in your practice, Vince? We close both defects with running non-absorbable suture. And that's what I plan on doing uh, as an attending as well. But I do understand that there is some variability in closure methods.
1: Oh yeah, some people use interrupted sutures, some people use permanent, some use absorbable. There's various techniques using clips. I've seen one group that went to just scratching those areas with a bovie pad and assuming that adhesions would form. No, No good data on that technique, but there are multiple methods to close both of these defects and obviously that also compromises any literature on the topic. Let me ask you what some of the downsides of closing the defects are. As mentioned in this paper, it's been suggested that there might be an increase in the risk of chronic abdominal pain with closure of the defects, although I'd say that is not definitive. There's also a possibility, whenever you close these defects, that they can still open up back over time, especially patients who have larger weight
2: loss. And closing the jejunojejunal mesenteric defect incorrectly can also kink the JJ, which can lead to obstruction.
0: Yeah, actually, the study does touch on all of these points. It's a randomized controlled trial in which showed these patients undergoing bariatric roux en gastric bypass were randomized to two groups: a closure group and a non-closure group. Uh, all patients had a 100 centimeter Roux limb and a 50 centimeter BP limb. They all they followed these patients for about 10 years and compared rates of reoperation for SBO, reoperation for internal herniation, and opioid use as a metric for chronic pain.
3: I think you hit the nail on the head there, Kenora, closing it correctly. Looking at the paper, it's also important to note that the patients who were randomized to the closure group had both the J.J. mesenteric and the Peterson's defects closed.
2: Also, the comparisons were done using a Cox proportional hazards regression that included risk factors like BMI, total weight loss at one year after surgery, and the other standard baseline patient characteristics like age and sex.
1: Yeah, the other thing that's impressive about this study, and obviously this wasn't done in the U.S., they had a 95 to 96% follow-up rate all the way up to 10 years postoperatively, one of the benefits of socialized medicine and having mandatory registries. Interestingly, though, they did find that small bowel obstruction rates were higher with mesenteric closure compared to the non-closure group within the first 30 postoperative days, so early SVO rates were higher.
2: Yeah, and I think that goes back to this finding is primarily driven by kinking of the JJ. 1.3% of the closure group had a small bowel obstruction due to kinking of the JJ within the first 30 days, compared to only 0.2% in the non-closure group.
3: True. However, after the first 30 post-operative days, small bowel obstructions due to JJ kinking became much less common. And there was no difference in the reoperation for small bowel obstruction due to jejunojejunostomy kinking after the first thirty days. So after that period of time, it seems to to go away as a risk factor.
1: Yeah, and one of the main findings in the study was that, that after those first thirty days, closing the mesenteric defects had a significantly lower rate of needing a reoperation for small bowel obstruction overall, and had a lower rate of internal hernia at ten years. The cumulative incidence of reoperations was 7.8% in the group that got the mesentery closed versus essentially double, 14.9% in the non-closure group.
2: And when focusing specifically on internal herniation, non-closure was significantly associated with higher rates of reoperation for internal hernia over the entire study period.
3: And Cara, I know you're very analytical and looked at, at the methods and the statistical analysis of this. Did the study perform subgroup analysis of the jejunal mesenteric defects in Peterson's space?
2: Yes, they did. The rate of reoperation for internal hernia was significantly higher in the non-closure group for both the JJ and Petersons. Younger age and higher total weight loss were also associated with higher rates of reoperation for internal hernia.
0: Oh, what about the issue of chronic pain and opioid
1: use? I think the bottom line was, unlike a prior study, this study didn't show any association between closure or non-closure with the incidence of chronic opioid use. I think of concern, though, when they looked at the incidence of chronic op- opioid use, it was 20.4% in the non-closure group and 19% in the closure group which was a pretty striking finding for me. I think those are both high incidences
3: of new opioid use in any patient population. Precisely. And certainly internal hernias have been one of the Achilles heel of the gastric bypass procedure. There's an increased risk of chronic abdominal pain, sometimes decreased quality of life following a variety of surgical procedures. But these seems to be higher with room y gastric bypass a recent Scandinavian study also showed up to 30% rates of chronic abdominal pain. The present study does not show any association between mesenteric defects and, and frequency of chronic pain, but really what they looked at is opioid use. It's just something to keep in mind that the potential for chronic abdominal pain, decreased quality of life, all can be impacted with closure of these defects as has been shown.
2: So I guess to wrap this study up in summary, this randomized controlled trial showed that mesenteric defect closure in patients undergoing ruin-wide gastric bypass was significantly associated with higher rates of post-op bowel obstruction requiring reoperation within the first 30 days. However, after these first 30 days, defect closure was significantly associated with lower rates of small bowel obstruction and specifically internal herniation all the way to 10 years post-op. No differences in the in- incidence of new chronic opioid use was observed, but as you guys just pointed out, it is they, those were pretty high numbers.
0: Dr. Marlow, at the beginning of our discussion, you mentioned that you only closed the JJ uh, defect now, when, but not Peterson's. W- will this paper change your clinical practice?
1: Eh, that, that, that's a great question. I think it definitely makes me think more about starting to close Peterson's, but, but I also think it points to You also need to know the own data in your practice and and remember this trial applies to the methods they used to both do the bypass and close the defects. Again, we actually, we looked at our own numbers in our practice and the rates of Peterson's hernias were almost zero. We haven't been seeing many Peterson's hernias, at least with the method we use for the bypass. And when we look at the numbers from this study, most of the internal hernias were JJ hernias. The Peterson's hernias were starting to get into single digits. And I think that's where you got to start looking at, because there is a risk, right? The early SPO rates were higher. So you really got to weigh your risks and benefits here. So I, I'm not sure I'm going to start routinely closing Peterson's, but I think this points to you you should be closing your mesenteric defects, at least definitely the JJ. And you need to be looking at your own numbers in your practice. What, what do you think, Kenor and Adrian?
3: It sounds like you're starting to be swayed, Matt. I will uh, make a couple points. Um, number one, I have to congratulate the authors for being able to have such high follow-up rates all the way up to 10 years. But although these internal hernias and the small bowel obstructions related to them tend to occur in the first few years, three years or so after the operation, it's important to remember that the risk to the patient is lifelong. It's not 10 years, it is for the rest of their life. And that's why it's important to to consider that. I'm gonna kick it back to you for one second, Matt, because I want to know how much of a division of the mesentery do you do for your jejunostomy? Is that part of the reason that you don't close the defect? Because it's a very small incision. Some people don't make any at all. Yeah. I want to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, that that's one of the reasons why we switched, because uh, we do zero mesenteric division. So so it's, again, it's a very small space. And the other side, you know, I've watched videos and also watched people close Petersons. And I can tell you in a lot of them, they're not actually closing Petersons. So you got to have a very good technique to expose and properly close Petersons, which I, I think obviously uh, you and Knorr both have, but but not everybody is a high volume, highly experienced bariatric surgeon doing these. W- what about you, Knorr?
2: Yeah, I'm team closed my defects all the time. All of them in every surgery that I do where I do any sort of intestinal division. I think that it is important though. The point here that is, I want to drive home is it's really the shape and the size of the defect that influences how I close it. So I don't think you can close all defects the exact same every time because that is going to happen. Like Especially with Petersons, they're so different depending on how big the colon is, how big the mesentery is. What the rule in mesentery is like and how those things have lined up for that operation that it really if you're going to close it you have to tailor it to that person's anatomy i think that's a really important point because otherwise you can end up with those small bowel obstructions or those half closed defects that are sometimes even more dangerous
1: i'll say i agree 100 uh, with those comments
3: i'll also say that the choice to abandon the closure should not be taken lightly Closure of the mesenteric defect may not always be feasible in problematic cases, heavy mesenteries, but it's certainly always attemptable. And only after that attempt has been made and deemed hazardous by the surgeon, is it okay to relinquish to relinquish the the plans to close. In my opinion, and the ability to close it in a precise and standardized manner and a manner which is effective comes from closing it routinely. So that's why another reason why I think. You should close it in every situation so when you get that difficult mesenteric or Peterson space that you're looking back there, it seems like it goes on forever. You have an idea of how to close it. Tamura, what do you think about that?
2: I agree. I would totally agree with that. All right. That's a
1: fantastic and important paper, Big Randomized Trial. I think we'll move on to discussing
0: our second paper of the day. Okay, let's change the ears a little bit and talk about the workup of a patient whom you suspect could have an internal hernia. Uh, after a thorough history and physical, what's your diagnostic study of choice?
1: Yeah, I'd say in most patients, it would be a CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. Other than the patient who's in extremis, has peritonitis, very clear needs emergent surgery that I say don't delay to get a CAT scan. But otherwise, my study of choice would be a CAT scan.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think the best first step in most of these patients is a CT scan
3: about an upper GI? Uh, I agree with Dr. Martin, Dr. James Bangler. An upper GI can be logistically difficult to obtain. It's dependent upon having a technician at the time of the day or the week. Also, a CT scan can give you a broader overview of the entire abdomen in cases of vague abdominal pain and nausea where the diagnosis is not as clear. So, CT for me also.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And especially here, again, in county facilities, we can't get an upper GI often at nights or weekends. And actually, the next paper we're going to discuss discusses this exact topic about how reliable is a CAT scan. So this is a recently published 2022 meta-analysis performed by Nawis and colleagues. And it looks at the diagnostic utility of CT scan and evaluating internal hernias. The title of the paper is the diagnostic accuracy of abdominal computed tomography, and diagnosing internal herniation following Ruin-Y gastric bypass surgery.
2: This is a pretty thorough paper. It includes 20 studies published between 2007 and 2020 that analyzed the accuracy of CT for detecting internal hernias in adult patients who underwent Ruin-Y gastric bypass for morbid obesity. Did body accuracy? Well,
3: they only included studies that compared diagnostic CT with him exploratory surgery. And also they looked at studies that had a combination of a negative CT and a negative 90-day follow-up study for that patient. So they were able to to ensure...
1: It's also important, obviously, to note that how they define internal hernia, which they defined as the presence of herniated small bowel with or without obstruction or ischemia through a visible opening at the mesenteric defect.
2: And the 20 studies that they found included 1,637 patients. They found that the pooled sensitivity was 82% and specificity was 85%. The positive predictive value was 83% and the negative predictive value was
0: 86%. I feel a little sheepish asking this, but uh,
3: is that good?
2: <laughs>
3: yes, it's very good. Uh, for reference, CT for any type of small bowel obstruction has a sensitivity of about 90% and the specificity also about 90%. And we all consider CTs as the gold standard for diagnostic imaging in small bowel obstructions. Okay, what were
0: some of the specific CT findings that suggested internal hernia? There's a
1: long laundry list of these uh, signs that have been described and published. In this paper, they looked at 14 specific CT findings that were discussed across all 20 papers. And 11 of these CT signs were described in at least four studies.
0: I feel like that's still quite a broad variety of individual findings.
2: You're right, Vince. That's a lot. And the CT signs with the highest sensitivity were venous congestion, swirl signs, and mesenteric edema. I think we're all pretty familiar with those three things. And the sensitivities of these signs were 79%, 78%, and 67%, respectively.
3: I think those are the things that all residents, fellows, and practicing surgeons should be able to recognize and look for on CT when worried about the situation. That
0: that being said, w- would you agree that there is some level of subjective interpretation of what constitutes an uh, imaging that's consistent with venous congestion or what constitutes a swirl or how much edema is concerning?
3: You bet you're right about that, Vincent. That's why it's important for. The surgeons look at their own CT scans because you're going to get a a variety of subjective interpretations from various specialties and from various radiologists. The paper does mention that there is a wide variation in intra-observer agreement appreciated across all of these studies. That's important to to recognize.
1: Yeah, and almost all of the studies they looked at were looking at CT interpretations made by the radiologist and not the surgeon. And oftentimes, obviously, the radiologist is trained to interpret those images, but the surgeon brings the combination of the detailed knowledge of the anatomy along with what pathology they're looking for.
2: So guys, with all of this in mind, what are your key takeaways from this paper?
3: The study confirms that CT is a very useful tool in the workup of internal hernia. It's quick and it tells you a lot. But just like physical exams, laboratory studies, vital signs, the individual CT findings, the overall CT impression is just a data point. And all those things taken together, and when you put them all together, they call us to help us formulate the actual assessment and and consider surgical intervention.
1: Yeah, I agree, Adrian. And I think the other take home message is CT is decent for identifying these, but not to hang your hat on a negative CT scan for an internal hernia, especially if there's clinical signs or concerns. As demonstrated in this article and numerous single center papers looking at this, there's about a 15% risk of an internal hernia, even if the CAT scan is negative. So I think it does justify having a low threshold to take these patients to surgery.
3: So I wanna ask Dr. Jane Spangler what her practice is. And I'll tell you mine, when I have a negative CT and a gastric bypass patients with unexplained abdominal pain, I have a pretty low threshold of pulling the trigger and doing a diagnostic laparoscopy. To me, it's a win-win situation. Either we identify an internal hernia or a defect or a bowel obstruction that should be repaired, we can all sleep better at night, or we identify that the mesentric defects are indeed closed, and again, we can all sleep better at night. So low threshold, I just take a look. It's three, five millimeter incisions. Kunura, what's your practice?
2: Absolutely. So we call this the final common pathway for abdominal pain in a gastric bypass patient. And what does that include? that so that includes a trip to the OR. You've done all the studies. You don't know what it is. So we're going to do an EGD, a lap coli, and look at all your defects. That's generally the things that we offer to them. I'll often start with the endoscopy, looking for an ulcer, something the most minimally invasive that I can, one note, make sure you're using gas on the endos- uh, on the endoscope and not air so that it will get resorbed pretty quickly if you're planning on doing a diagnostic laparoscopy or already have your ports in and then do the endoscopy if you know you're going to be taking the gallbladder out. But I agree totally 100%, very low threshold. We know circling back full circle to the first paper, chronic abdominal pain, internal hernias, it is uh, a high correlation. So Especially since we do, still do have a lot of patients hanging out and did not have their defects closed back in the day. So I think it's very low risk and very high satisfaction, uh, especially from the patient standpoint, if we do fix it.
1: Now if you add if you add an appendectomy to that package, we call that rigging them for silent running. <laughs> so you, you, you no longer get tortured by the, these abdominal pain complaints. But what's one, one thing I've noticed are the messages that I think we're getting sent, especially to trainees about CT scan. And, and I've seen messages where I think that the trainees say CT scan is useless for indoor hernia, which I think is the wrong message. But then I've also seen the, oh, the CAT scan's negative, so they're camping indoor hernia. Kanur I, I, and Adrian, have you noticed those two kind of gestalts uh, and- of your trainees?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think there are definitely some, it's kind of a bipolar view. But I think I would just point out that it really is, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? It really is who's looking at that scan. I saw a patient in my clinic a couple of days ago with chronic abdominal pain. But I looked at her CT scan, the read and the impression mentioned nothing about an internal hernia. And there is a clear mesenteric swirl. And people have been talking about reversing her gastric bypass and doing other things. And I think honestly, what she needs is a diagnostic laparoscopy. So CT is not just dependent, it's slices of data, just like Adrian said. You're also looking at a 3D object on a 2D screen. And so I think we can't, yes, you can't hang your hat on it, but it does provide a lot of useful data. It just depends on what it's capturing at what moment and who's looking at it at the right time.
3: I've got another concept I wanna run past you guys as experts in the field we always talk about defects opening regardless of closure. So obviously early in the experience of a surgeon, you may not be as good as closing it, but that number is still somewhere between 50% to 70% uh, that remain closed. That means 30 to 50% of hernia defects, despite the intent to close them, will open. What do you guys do to ensure that you decrease that number um, as much as possible? And, and how would you, how would you guide our, our colleagues, residents, fellows in in doing so?
2: So I make sure there's peritoneum in every bite. Mesentery is covered in peritoneum and the bites that you take need to be not too chintzy and not too big. So we're not getting vessels, but we're also getting enough peritoneum because what's staying closed, what you're suturing closed is peritoneum to peritoneum. The fat's all going to melt away. But if you've gotten an adequate amount of peritoneum on both sides of that closure, it should stay intact. I think also using non-absorbable suture obviously is important. It's interesting now with the new V-locks. A lot of people are doing mesenteric closure with that. I've played with it some and making sure I bury my tail so that I don't get any bowel obstructions or adhesions to that tail, I think is an important thing with that suture. But it'll be interesting to see if the barbs help them stay closed with a higher level of certainty than what we've traditionally used.
1: Yeah. And I agree with your key point there. And I think the bigger problem is the chintzy bites versus the two bigger I see a lot of that taking these tiny bites and, oh my God, if I stick one of these tiny little vessels, everything's going to go ischemic. That small bowel anastomosis is is one of the most well-perfused things in that abdominal cavity. Yeah. Even if you hit a vessel or two, you're closing. So I tell them, the trainees, when they're doing the closure to err on the bigger side of those bites. But beyond that, we really don't have much else technically that's evidence-based that we can say it's going to prevent those from reopening when they lose weight. And how about in your fellowship program, Vince? Uh, Are you guys very aggressive about the abdominal pain patients and are you taking them to the OR even with a
0: negative CT and doing a diagnostic laparoscopy? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's just, even though so many of these patients, like we discussed uh, before, about 30% of bypass patients have chronic abdominal pain. It's definitely high on our differential. And we just have a very low threshold to just take a look. Um, Dr. Dan said uh, the 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 benefits far outweigh the risks.
1: And uh, let me ask one final question, Adrian and Kanoor And this is the, you're seeing this patient in clinic. You've seen them a couple times for intermittent colicky abdominal pain. You ordered an outpatient CAT scan. It comes back and it's unremarkable, but they're coming in still having this pain. How urgent of an issue is that? Are you like admitting them right then and take them to the OR? Or are you scheduling them for a semi-elective laparoscopy in a couple weeks? How, how do you approach that patient?
3: Well, I'll tell you from my standpoint, it depends on on the presentation with the patient. If they're doubled over, not eating anything, the signs and symptoms are consistent with the bowel obstruction. I may schedule them for the next day or before the end of the week. Sometimes I get a patient like that that hasn't had the benefit of a CT scan or an endoscopy, and if the symptoms are consistent and they're not consistent with a marginal ulcer or something else, then i will go ahead and skip the cat scan because it's not gonna change my mind i'm gonna take a look so i would do a diagnostic laparoscopy coupled with a upper gi endoscopy but not the gallbladder uh, or the appendix however if the patient has mild symptoms i think it's and has been having them for numerous weeks to months i think it's fair to wait a week two weeks
2: Yeah, I agree with Adrian. I think this is entirely dependent on on an amalgamation of data and kind of their clinical picture. So, you know, normal vitals, normal labs don't appear to be malnourished, can eat and drink okay, but having some abdominal pain every now and then, or bouts of episodic abdominal pain, they're probably going to get a semi-elective operation. If this is somebody who says, I'm throwing up four times a week, you check some labs and they do have some nutritional deficiencies. They come into your office tachycardic. That might be somebody that I admit and take to the OR sooner rather than later. So I think it really is just that spectrum of where did they lie on my my little red flag scale.
1: All right. That's great to discuss. All right,
0: Vince, you want to wrap us up? Sounds good. Thank you, all three of you so much for joining and sharing your expertise. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. and I look forward to continuing to pick your brains in the future.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Vince. Matt O'Connor.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to this bariatric surgery episode of Behind the Knife. Tune in for our next episode, which will focus on clinical challenges with internal hernias and the bariatric patient with abdominal pain. And as always, dominate the day.